Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is AppSats Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are AppSats certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis. There is nothing we won't talk about. So I've got Amy on the line. Amy, welcome to the show. What's your question? Well, I have a question about what um, healthy sexuality looks like when Mm. a sex addict is in recovery. One of the things we know about research and sex addicts is that they don't necessarily want sex with their own wife. And so to me, that says he's in really good recovery because he does want that with you. He has been two years sober. He has been in three facilities. And I suspect that's how he's wanting closeness with you. And, you know, there are plenty of partners that probably hear that intro and they say to themselves, you know what, sometimes I feel like when my husband is having sex that he is objectifying me and he is using me as a sexual object. And I don't know what to do about it. It certainly is a turnoff and I don't want to have sex as a result. And he denies that he's doing it, but that's how I feel. Well, the truth of the matter is that's probably an early couple's recovery session because there are all sorts of reasons for you to fear that you might be being objectified, 100%. And in essence, although I've never heard an addict admit that, um, you could be. But I also know that men in general, this isn't rocket science, but it is something that we certainly learned in doing good marital therapy, Men in general want to have sex to make up for their um, mistakes, for their inadequacies. I mean, instead of apologizing, they'll say, hey, let's go to bed. And, you know, that in in and of itself can be very difficult. I always am talking to couples that have not experienced sexual betrayal. You know, these are just couples that are coming in with problems. And I'll say, that's not necessarily what she wants. She needs to hear that you are sorry for yelling at her or you are sorry that you um, didn't cut the grass eight days in a row or you're sorry that you spent money on that drum kit. She needs to know that. She needs to hear the words before she can begin to feel close. And then as many of you know, we also talk about the fact that with normal coupleship, and it's probably true with sex addicts in recovery and their betrayed partners, that sex and foreplay start way earlier than the time you've uh, planned to have sex. I mean, it happens when he's making the bed and he's rubbing her feet and he's saying kind things to her. That's the real foreplay that will make somebody want to have sex. So even though in this intro, I happen to know this couple, and I know that he was not objectifying her. He loves being close to her, and this is one of the ways that he's been socialized to believe that he can be close. In addition to wanting to have sex with her, they tie chi together. They read devotionals together every morning and every evening. Um they attend a couple's recovery group together. Actually, they, they lead it. Um, and so there are lots of ways and lots of mechanisms that they're using to stay close. Um, and yet, again, as a partner, I understand that this is a tough situation. 
Now, I feel like we're really lucky today because we're going to be talking with James Anir, and he has the website hopeforus.com. He does what they call core relational recovery. Core is the name of his facility. He and his wife, Sharon Reinerson, um, have this center together, and he's going to be talking about attachment styles of partners betrayed through problematic sexual and intimacy behavior. So I'm really looking forward to talking about attachment styles because I get that attachment is oftentimes uh, in the midst of sex addiction and in the midst of sexual addiction recovery because attachment really occurs early on in one's childhood. And then it shows up over and over and over again in other types of relationships. And when a relationship has been very damaged, uh, there are all sorts of reasons to detach and to have attachment issues. So I am so looking forward to that. Uh, He has really done some research that confirms some things that he thought he knew and confirms some things that he didn't. Now, I'm wondering, if you're listening to this show, I'm wondering what you do to create intimacy in your relationship. See, what I know is that many of you are tuning in because discovery has been in the last year. And many of you have weathered this storm for two years, five years, 10 years, even 20 years, even 30 years. And so you're in a different place than somebody who's just experienced discovery. However, at some point, as you begin to feel a little bit more safety and stabilization, you might look at some safe ways to create intimacy. Now, I'm not necessarily talking sexual intimacy. If you've read my book, Help or Heal, you know that we talk about intellectual intimacy, emotional intimacy, sexual intimacy. And it may feel a lot safer to start with emotional or intellectual intimacy. At APSAT, which, of course, is who sponsors the show. Um, APSATS is partner-sensitive, and APSATS believes that you have to be able to go at your own pace. There's no reason to force anything. And yet a good partner-sensitive therapist will challenge you a bit and say, hey, you know, you're sticking around. You're watching with bated breath. You're beginning to feel more comfortable. What might you do to improve your level of connection or your level of trust? Which is, in essence, intimacy. Again, in the book, Help or Heal, I am so sorry I'm talking about it so much today. i got to tell you, I am developing an online course, and so it is at the forefront of my mind. Um, In the book, it has this skill. It's an exercise that you do with your spouse every day or every other day. And it's very benign but very powerful. It's benign because it doesn't really bring up conflict. It is a skill that says, and I do this all the time with my husband, I might add, um, hey, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being great, 1 being not so good, um, how would you rate the quality of our relationship today? Not yesterday. Not last week when you were having a fight, but how would you rate the quality of our relationship today? And your spouse may say, hmm, I'd give it a four, or hmm, I'd give it a six. 
And then if he, if he says a six, then you say, what would it take to make it a seven? If he gives it a four, you say, what would it take to make it a five? And you do that very neutrally. Um, and then that forces the other person to come up with something small that they would like to see more of in the relationship. I mean, that might be, well, I would love for you to rub my feet while we watch HGTV. Or, well, I'd really like for you to start putting the kids to bed at least three three nights a week. Or, hey, I'd really like for you to drive more. Would you be willing to start driving us to church? You know, again, there's small things that would just tweak the relationship a little bit. And they're very, very important. Why? Because it is so very, very important to improve the relationship in a safe way. And that's why I encourage that. So again, it's called, how would you rate the quality of our relationship? I actually got that exercise from one of my favorite books. It has nothing to do with sexual addiction. and It has nothing to do with partner betrayal. It's called The Success Principles, and it's by Jack Canfield. And it's my favorite book for two reasons. One, it's a, a book of success principles that improves one's life. Two, each chapter is only about four pages, four to six pages, and it gives you a principle like that. And when I'm reading something that's four to six pages long, I can really, I can really retain it. And being that I'm lucky enough to do counseling and coaching, I usually get to see how it works with my clients. So I watch them work the principle. And then they'll come back and they'll say something like, that was incredible. When you told me that you believe that we are all 100% responsible for our behavior, it just made me shift how I look at life. And I started using that, and I started feeling more empowered and also less like a victim. So that's one of his principles, too, or my principle that I tell all my coaches, go in for the big ask, when in doubt, ask, and for you partners, I got to tell you, most of your partners are women, and women have trouble going in for the big ask. So what might you do? What what might you ask for? I mean, truly, what would you like to do? What would you like to ask for so that you make it your own? And when you ask, do you feel like you can get your needs met? I mean, that's so important to get your needs met in healthy ways, right? We're teaching recovering addicts. Hey, call your sponsor. Find out what he or she would like, depending on if you're a male or female sex addict. Find out what they're willing to do for you. Will they meet you? You know, when I'm talking about doing the recovery tools, I'm always encouraging sex addicts to meet with their sponsor face-to-face. Love that they check in, you know, via text and via the phone but love it even more when there's face-to-face contact because that's when the sex addict will develop more intimacy with his sponsor. And when he develops that intimacy, that attachment, if you will, he's more likely to make a connection, to build trust, and to take those skills and apply them to your relationship. So, 
going to challenge you this week, and I'm going to ask you to use that quality um, exercise. How would you rate the quality of our relationship from 1 to 10? I'm going to ask you to do that once. I'm also going to ask you to go in for the big ask and ask somebody to help you or to contribute positively in your life. And don't be attached to the outcome. Just practice the process of asking. And I promise you, the better you get at asking, the easier your life will be. And I can't stress enough that this show is all about making your life simple. Creating a life that absolutely, 100% supports you. You've been through a lot. You've been through horrible trauma. You've been through terrible stress. And now it's time to rebuild your life. And you have to take some accountability yourself for that. It starts with intentional self-care and going in for the big ask. So get ready because we are going to be asking James a lot about attachment theory and what he has seen amongst partners who've experienced problematic sexual and intimacy behavior. So James, I really want to welcome you to the show. How are you this afternoon? Hi, Carol. Um, doing great. How are you? Well, fine. We were worried about you this year because, of course, you're based at West Palm Beach, Florida. And how are things down there? Well, we um, we actually got incredibly lucky. Uh, Dorian stayed uh, about 60 miles offshore um, and... We only had tropical storm force winds, so we were very, very lucky, um, which is uh, difficult to um, say in comparison to the Bahamas. Yeah, I know that you're on the board of APSATS, and obviously so is your wife, Sharon, and we were really worried. Am I, am I right? Is it West Palm Beach or is it Palm Beach, Florida? Uh, West Palm Beach. Um, Palm Beach is okay. basically the barrier island um, between West Palm and the ocean. So, uh, but that wouldn't, um, with with the regards to the hurricane, that wouldn't have helped us much. <laughs> so, um, that was so incredibly powerful. So we were okay. truly blessed not to be hit. Um, I think we lost a bush. That was it. Um, so. You know, but we still had to prepare the normal way, just like anywhere. If you're in California, you know how to handle earthquakes and fires, and we know what to do when it comes to hurricanes. But something that powerful that sat over the Bahamas um, was like, uh, I think, the second highest tornado, but ex- except that it went on for 24 hours straight. Uh, so you can imagine what those poor people experienced. Oh, absolutely. Now, I know that I have been really excited about what you were going to be talking about because I know over the last three years at Core Relational Recovery that you have been tracking the attachment style changes of betrayed partners in seven heterosexual couples who have experienced problematic sexual and intimacy disorder. So tell us a little bit about why you did this and if you would, tell us what you found. Okay. Um, well, one of the – I'm big on uh, my kind of purview, if you will. Uh, one of the things I'm really interested in uh, is developmental psychology and um, and attachment. And so um, I think, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll run down a really basic um, attachment uh, description so that um, so that any listeners who aren't familiar with attachment uh, can know what that's about. Would that be okay? Oh, that'd be great. So you're going to go into maybe four of the attachment styles? 
Right, exactly. So um, basically the way that I describe attachment is that it is uh, the way in which an individual connects with other people, um, especially in the face of uh, emotional pain, separation, or threat. So in this case, particularly uh, with um, problematic sexual and intimacy behavior, that would also that threat would include infidelity, abuse, and gaslighting, uh, as well as some other uh, some other things. So, um, what there are generally four attachment styles. And it used to be thought that uh, once we went through childhood, our attachment style was was pretty much fixed, and that's how we would relate to people for the rest of our lives. Um, but we got interested because uh, in, in how things changed because we were noticing that um, attachment styles were changing in, in partners and actors. Uh, now we call the, uh, the person with the problematic sexual intimacy behavior actors um, because they are the ones who are acting out and uh, also because they can um, act, as you pointed out in our last interview, they can be the the actor, the, the, the gaslighter that, that acts the part, so to speak. Um, so essentially what we were noticing was that there was, there was movement going on and between the different attachment styles. So the attachment styles break down uh, into four things. There's secure, which means that when you're in a secure relationship, uh, um, you have really low avoidance of the other person and really low anxiety around the other person. Then there's um, preoccupied, uh, which is actually a low avoidance, but it's a high anxiety around that person. And fearful avoidance, uh, which is high avoidance, so not wanting to be around the person and experiencing very high anxiety around them. And then lastly, there's dismissive, uh, dismissive avoidant, which is a high avoidance but low anxiety. So those could be characterized so secure could be characterized as I feel connected on a deep level. I feel heard, seen, and accepted for who I am. Uh, we collaborate on our decisions. Preoccupied could really looks like hypervigilance. Um, boy, I, I have to watch everything he does so I can feel safe. I don't trust him, so I have to check on him all the time. Fearful avoidant would, uh, would look like, again, hypervigilance. Um, but a little different in that if I'm vulnerable or if I'm trusting or if I try to connect, I'm going to be hurt, I'm going to be rejected, abandoned, or all alone. And then the sort of existential question, how is he going to hurt me today? Uh, and then lastly, dismissive would be characterized in this situation more as um, I'm done with him, I don't want or need him, I don't need, I don't need this, I don't need love or connection. So those are the, that's basically how those break down, and they're usually presented in a, uh, an axis graph format. So you would see you're secure in the top left quadrant, preoccupied in the top right quadrant, fearful avoidant in the lower right, and then dismissive in the lower left. So if you can imagine that, just looking at it uh, in those four quadrants, your basic you know, third-grade level math axis graph. Um, right. So when we and so, can I ahead. ask you something? You're obviously describing the four types, but when you say attachment, um, would you explain again how partners may experience just the word attachment, let alone the four styles? What does that word sure. mean? So so really, the attachment is um, is the bond of deep trust uh, and intimacy through um, you know emotional. So there's this when when we get when we fall in love and get into a relationship and get married, we we just um, we have this connection, this you know, tremendous bond with the other person, and there's a deep trust that the other person is there for us. Um, would never dream of hurting us, uh, you know, and has the same life goals that we have, uh, and we form that partnership. And so, um, for for partners, especially if we if we um, so this, you know, what we did was based on heterosexual couples because that's who we had in our practice. Um, not that I mean we've treated others, 
other part other uh, couples, but um, this centered around around those around heterosexual couples. Um, so uh, wives or, or females especially will go more into deeper into that trust than males. Males um, tend to be not that they don't go deeper into that trust. They do go deep, but there's um, there's a different take on it. Whereas with female partners, it really is about this incredible life commitment, this deepness of here's my soul, I'm handing it to you to hold sacred, to hold my trust, my hopes, my dreams, my joys, my family, everything sacred. It is an incredibly deep, um, to use the word, to define the word, attachment to the other person. And, um, and so when that is violated is when when there is, I mean, you can imagine the serious repercussions and, and traumatic repercussions of a, um, a divide or, or a break in that attachment because it is so deeply given. Yeah, you know, I believe, and I don't know what you think, James, but I believe that when it comes to partner betrayal, it is by far the most fracturing of any event that can that can happen to an attachment it it shatters and crushes partners on every level so that's why I was so excited to be talking about this and again you you explain the attachment styles you said secure or preoccupied or fearful avoidant or dismissive and can you tell us a little bit about I, I actually had said to my audience, hey, sometimes this stuff starts in childhood. And yet clearly what we know is that the partner did not attract this into her life. There just might be a, a pattern where she experienced it in, in childhood and then again experienced it in her marriage. So can you share, did you follow these women um, from their childhood on up? We do um, with every client that we get. So um, if we, if the couple, if a couple comes in as, as um, a client, then we do uh, do developmental history with both. Uh, the really important thing to remember though, is that while we experience childhood wounds um, and uh, the, that those play into for partners that that plays into uh, how extreme the trauma can be when they are betrayed. So, um, meaning it isn't causative, right? It's Mm -hmm. not, right. um, Hey partner, you know, well, this is what you experienced as a, as a child. So, you know, what do you expect? This is what you got as an adult. No, it's not that at all. It's just that there, if there were wounds in that, in, in the areas of, trust of um, of validation of nurture of feeling necessary of having power and control over your own life of of um, of belonging or connection if there were if there was there were wounds as a child then then if there is betrayal then those can be brought back to the fore and the trauma therefore would be deepened and and not to say it's not deep to begin with it is incredibly deep but that can be additive and drive it even deeper so you know um, we all have we can't escape childhood without some level of trauma in those five areas Uh, but that does not mean that it's causative in terms of you know later betrayal we no partner goes into a marriage wanting to or or anticipating setting up that kind of betrayal. Well, again, I'm glad you reiterated that because we absolutely know that that is true, that they didn't cause it in any way from their childhood into their adulthood. And yet it certainly brings on uh, different diagnoses. You know, sometimes our clients have trauma, but it results in anxiety and sometimes our clients have trauma and it results in post-traumatic stress symptoms. And certainly when our partners have had trust issues, severe trust issues in their childhood, 
they're much more likely to have a complex post-traumatic stress. And I'm sure that there are some correlations to attachment issues when they've had it in childhood and have been betrayed as adults. Did you find that at all? Um, that wasn't necessarily part of what we looked at, but I can tell you from, from experience and from all of my work in developmental work and attachment work that, yes, that is true um, because of that exacerbation uh, of those original issues that, um, that were present. And, you know, some, now some partners have done, prior to being married, have done incredible work on their own, whatever trauma they might have experienced as a child. And I just want to say that trauma is such a big word, and it's been, um, you know, it's been defined so widely over the last 30 years or so as having to be unimaginable trauma. So, um, you know, sexual abuse and physical abuse and uh, neglect and, um, you know, really deep abandonment. And the thing is that really what, what we see a lot in terms of childhood trauma is not necessarily at that depth, although absolutely it can be there. Um, but many people come in and say, well, I don't have any trauma. I had a pretty fairly worry-free childhood. But if we look at what children, how children's brains are um, developing prior to the age of 12, they are not able to discern, and this is very hard for adults to understand because we can't wrap our brains around it. You know, it's, it's very difficult to get that prior to age 12, can't discern between one negative experience and another, no matter how deep it is. So, you know, let's say that um, my cat say I was seven and my cat, who I love dearly, disappeared for a few days, that would that would affect me with because I, my brain couldn't discern as much as my parents um, divorcing when I was three or, you know, or something else that, or moving, uh, my sister went off to boarding school when I was 10. Well, that, mm -hmm. those were events in my life and they certainly can last longer um, in terms of the, their effect. But prior to the age of 12, I can't discern the difference. It all hurts. There, um, uh, yeah. mine, Adrian Hickman, who, who runs Capstone um, Center out in uh, in Arkansas, he had the, he said, um, you know, there are no big T or little T traumas under the age of 12. There are only arrows. And I just love that mm -hmm. because it really states mm -hmm. it. So clearly, and it's really hard for our adult brains to wrap. How can that be the same as abuse? Well, it's not because the abuse piece does last longer in terms of depth, etc., and can be can result in more reactive behavior later. But um, all we cannot escape childhood without negative experiences. So I'd like for people to reframe what we mean by trauma prior to the age of 12 as negative experiences, um, and mm -hmm. nobody can escape. We all have, we're human. We have negative experiences in childhood. So, um, you know, seeing those and seeing what defenses our child mind developed in order to protect ourselves is really important in terms of seeing what might be hanging people up in terms of their, um, their reaction to the current trauma and being able to help them handle that. It's not to say we have to resolve the earlier trauma to help them handle mm -hmm. what's happening, but it can really be informative in terms of their reactions yeah. and their And I know that you and Sharon have made it your mission, again, at a core relationship recovery to understand this issue for anybody who has experienced problematic sexual and intimacy be, uh, disorder, and then tell me a little bit, because you wanted to do it right, and that's why you felt like you needed to research these couples and understand them, and anytime we look at research, it just gives, it legitimizes the findings. So, so tell me a little bit, how much time did you spend with each couple in treatment, and, and what type of treatment did each couple receive? 
So typically, um, most couples come in and um, they do an intensive, which is truly the word intense is, is a very good word. <laughs> and it generally lasts 8 to 14 days with the couple. Now, that doesn't mean that they're together the whole time. Sometimes we take them into different rooms and work, you know, work some more, um, some issues that are coming up or work some of the individual uh, work so that they can understand things better and then come back together, et cetera. So eight to 14 days typically. Sometimes it's happened where we've seen uh, perhaps the, the uh, person, the actor, the first time for a week intensive and then um, the betrayed partner decides she wants to come, and then later on we see them as a couple as as they've done some work with us. So it can happen a few ways. Um, and then after intensives, we do do aftercare. Now this depends on whether uh, they have their own therapist or not. Obviously, you've referred some people to us, and then those people come back and they continue with you. Um, but if they just come to us, then we're going to be doing a lot of one-on-one uh, -on -one work with them. Group work, we have current uh, groups for both actors and partners. Um, and those, uh, those are, we, we find that people really heal well with those and they develop, we encourage them to develop a community. So they're in contact with each other. They have each other's numbers. Obviously, they have to feel comfortable doing that. We, we don't force anything. Um, but they have been incredibly, and those are monitored. We we monitor those. So um, that sounds like we're big brother. That isn't the case. We just add in when something is is necessary. Otherwise, we we just watch and make sure that everybody's being supportive of each other in a healthy way. Uh, we also do. Um, we have coaches on our team. Fantastic coaches, Galen and, mm -hmm. and Kat, uh, Sarah who are incredible, and so we have a team approach. So when we feel like somebody needs one person's expertise, we have them do some sessions with them. Uh, so basically we're doing the intensives, we're doing the group therapy, the individual work, and then specific individual work based on whatever the issues might be that are coming up. Um, so with each couple, though, now we, we looked at seven couples, so there are some limitations to what we did. Uh, seven is a very small sample size. So that's, that's a big limitation. And, and, of course, they were all under our care. So it was within our, mm -hmm. our uh, WENESS model. So that's W-E-N-E-S-S um, So versus MENESS. Right? So, um, so, you know, there are some limitations in that they were under our model and that, um, that they were all heterosexual, that they, that they, and, um, they were uh, all, in, all doing group, et cetera, et cetera. There were, there were some, some limitations there and the number. You know, we would love to see, I'd love to see somebody take this and, and really roll with it and, and do something with hundreds of people to really make, to get more and more data. Yeah, I get um, the, that, and I'm sure somebody will because you have really started quite the programming here. Um, can you tell us real quick, how do you assess these clients from start to finish? We do an incredible amount of, uh, of this sounds horrible for those who don't like to take tests, <laughs> but we do an incredible yeah. amount of assessments, and they, aren't, they generally aren't that long, obviously, for for actors, we do do, um, I'm a CSAT supervisor as well as a, uh, a certified clinical partner specialist supervisor So with APSATs. So the, under the CSAT um, uh, certification, we get access to some fantastic testing for the actor, and, and they have some uh, really great testing that uh, for the partner as well. APSATs also has its own testing that is um, fantastic. So. The more data we can get there, the better. Uh, that, of course, I just want to say assessments do not tell us who you are. They only give us a snapshot of what the issues might be. So every time that somebody comes in, we're going to talk to them about what we found in those assessments see what and see how that lines up with, with their reality. Uh, in those assessments, we use um, and something called the encounters with um, in uh, 
that right? <laughs> of course, I'm the one who does the testing, and I and I it totally I'm just based on that. Um, Get the experience it. Mm-hmm. encounters experiences in close relationships, which is a long form uh, test that really looks at what the what a person's attachment style is, and we do this for usually people just do one. What we like to do is split it up. Um, so we do one for mom, for dad, for if they are there are kids, for kids. But the, and the most essential, of course, is um, the your husband or wife. So. Each person does all of those, and then we're able to see where they stand. And sometimes uh, those results can be questionable, so we talk about that some more. Um, The only reason they can be questionable is because usually on the actor's part, they can feel very secure, but it's because Mm -hmm. they have, at that point, very little understanding of the damage that uh, that they've done. Um, Mm -hmm. So now then, farther on, we can do the long form where there is also a short form called the same thing. It's just ECR short form. The first one was developed by Chris Fraley and others. And the second, I cannot pronounce the guy's, the gentleman's first name, but his last name is Wei, W-E-I. Um, and so those were developed, um, one in 2000 and then one in 2007. And Chris Fraley is um, sort of the attachment change guru so a lot of his website is fantastic to see how attachment can change and i think that you know part of what he's discovered whereas it used to be thought that it was fixed from the beginning is that um, it actually changes based on how what's going on in the relationship uh, over time and it can change really from moment to moment which i think is really important when we talk about these changes uh with betrayed partners going through their their recovery and why they, um, you know, what happens when there's discovery, why they bounce back and forth between um, so heavily between being loving and calm or distancing and um, and trying to keep themselves safe and raging and and that was where because I was seeing all of this and going well there's an attachment change going on here and when we did the research Fraley had done a lot of that work and really correlated uh, a lot of a lot of those changes to how the relationship is going and what's happening in it he wasn't specifically doing betrayal trauma at all he was just looking at in general we went very specific on this okay so now let me ask you this obviously after completing all the assessments and providing all the support tools, um, how long does recovery from betrayal trauma take, in your opinion? Uh, so so um, this I is um, the <laughs> question, right? And uh, it was the question, the main question that I was hoping we could answer by doing this. What we were able to do, I think the the, the big results that we got were um, how attachment changes during each period of recovery. And we traced it back to from wedding day. So obviously these people were not in not in treatment with us on their wedding day. So some of the some of that is remembered, right? It, it couldn't be done in real time. Um, and then so what we found overall was um, how long does it take? Unfortunately, the timing of each phase, and remember it's only a sample of seven couples, so or seven betrayed partners in, in the case of, of what we're presenting. But um, so this could be with a much larger study, it might be, might be more easily correlated, but amongst those seven couples, the timing of each phase of recovery varied so widely that um, from phase movement to event timing, that there was no way to provide any correlation of notes. So by that, I mean uh, we one of our couples was in back into their secure quadrant, not fully, and, and please bear in mind this is really important, that on wedding day you're at your, which is sad to say, you're at your most secure uh, in the relationship at any given time. And then after, uh, during, after the recovery process, really the entire relationship is reborn in a different way. This is providing that people make it all the way back to 
to you know into recovery and and are have stayed together uh, and enter the secure quadrant again. But it, it's still in the secure quadrant, but it has an entirely different tenor to it because now there's true intimacy, um, uh, which the partner always had, but now it's going to be changed because, of course, she can't ever un unsee what she has seen. She will not be able to um, – uh, the, the trauma can be resolved, but, but there, those things exist, so – um, okay. So there's not, you know, there's a, there has to be a total re, rebirth, if you will, of the relationship. But it's it's very very different. The actor learns how to be properly intimate rather than than relying on intensity. So, um, so that's the problem was that we saw it as little as eight months, and then as much as uh, two two plus years. Uh, now that's not to say all clients were in were in treatment with us for that long. Some were right. not in treatment for that long. So, you know, again, that that sample size actually narrows when you go for the when you get into the longer periods. Um, but reporting back, we follow up, of course, with those who are no longer with us. They usually are no longer with us because they've reached a place where they're they're doing well, and they maybe come back once in a while for additional help if they're having some issues. Uh, but um, but generally, once they've entered that even the lower part of the secure quadrant, then you know they they feel comfortable enough to move on. Now some decide to stay with us because they enjoy learning, and they really enjoy mm -hmm. what they're getting and expanding their relationship and making it um, to use the army's thing all that they can be. <laughs> right? um, which is my attitude is with with my wife Sharon because we're in recovery is. I never want this growth to end. It's so fantastic. Well, Every bit of forward movement we make uh, is amazing and enhances our relationship, and we are in so much better shape than we were even on our wedding day. Um, now it has well, been eight I years. Say, these you guys and other, you know, obviously other actors and partners, when, when you do the work, you end up being better than 95% of the people out there. So, it is because oh. of the hard work that everybody's willing to do. It takes a long time to get to the, to the place that I'm going to say that Sharon and I are and have been for a while. We're both grateful for my addiction. Um, mm -hmm. As horrible as it was and as much as both of us wish it had never been there, um, the, the changes that have happened because of it because of discovery, because of the, my my horrific behaviors and the trauma, um, and then my exploration of my childhood trauma to look at what was causative in my behaviors. Not that you know, obviously, there's. It's not to say, oh well, it's all my mom's fault or all my dad's fault. No, it's you know, I'm in charge of my behaviors, and I'm the one who has to learn how to who had to learn how to change them. And the way that I did that was not just to change the behaviors, but to look at my past and the deep trauma that I experienced and, and mend that and heal myself with, of course, a lot of help with, from therapists um, and in SLAA and my sponsor. Um, but that was our relationship is beyond anything I think that I could have ever imagined it could be. I think that Sharon, you know, knew it could be this because that's who, that's, that's who Sharon is. She's, incredible and you know um, and if I could take away all the pain that I caused her for us to get to this place I would but uh, unfortunately I can't and um, you know and, I, and I'm really aware of it and I don't forget it you know this is not a forgetting thing this is it's it's always there yeah and it's working through it I'm sorry, I talked over you. Yeah, no, I was going to say it's it's about really working through it and learning from it, and then applying some of those relational skills that that help to neutralize what you've been through, like you know, looking at what's working and and noticing the improvements. And you know, you have been instrumental, both you and Sharon, in helping couples to work through these kind of attachment issues, I wanted you to tell us, although I know there's not a date yet, um, 
you're actually going to be doing a free webinar on problematic sexual behavior, correct? Actually, it's on this um, this work that we did on the attachment. So um, it really looks at, you know, from uh, we've got several areas that we assessed um, as far as attachment change, so wedding day to the normal, typical relationship change. Hey, the honeymoon period is over. Hey, reality's setting in. He's got really irritating behaviors, like he leaves his laundry on the floor. He brushes his teeth with my toothbrush, you know. He doesn't take a shower for two days. You know, the normal kind of relationship stuff. <laughs> I'm not saying that not showering for two days is normal, but, <laughs> but those things, you know, the things that irritate us, that's normal, typical relationship change when just the real world sets in. And then to discovery day, and then going from there to uh, staggered disclosures, the you know, partner mm-hmm. finding her own safety is several segments along the way uh, in terms of, you know, in the weeks following D-Day, the months, et cetera, what uh, triggers look like in terms of attachment, um, formal disclosure, impact letters um, or impact letter, uh, um, restitution letter, so triggering behaviors and even relapse. So we've got all of that in there and all of it tracked. Um, you know, based on this small sample, but it really does show uh, really interesting stuff and, and really quite, I think, quite highly predictable changes, uh, which I'm hoping will help partners understand or normalize for them what they're going through emotionally to see it graphically and that it's been traced, you know, it's, or, or excuse me, tracked. Um, with other couples and what they went through and to see, oh, wow, this is, this is okay that I'm here. You know, this is okay that this is what is happening right now. It's okay that, you know, I'm going between loving him and hating him and raging at him and, and you know, um, and not to say that you want that to last, of course, but that mm-hmm. it's, there's a normal phase for that. Um, so that partners partners can really judge themselves based on on that confusion, that loss of identity. You know, partners lose their wound, their attachment is wounded, but not just their atta- their attachment. They're they're wounded in their heart. So there's a psychological and emotional, huge emotional impact. And then there's um, there's also wounding of their sexuality. One, one of our partners said, and I quoted, I've quoted her in the presentation, you just, this is during uh, her impact letter, you stole my sexuality from me. Oh, yeah, that, that is really, she has, she's able to say exactly what she means. That's how my partners feel. It was, they were robbed. The addiction robbed them of sexual relationships. So now, James, tell me, where can our listening audience sign up for this free webinar? Okay, so um, they initially, uh, until I get it up on the website, so I, I just sorted out the date with uh, with Galen, um, one of our coaches who uh, does our, uh, she hosts our webinars for us because she's got that kind of brain. Um, <laughs> And frankly, I don't know why I'm very techy, but that for some reason escapes me. So I spoke with her, and um, we have actually set the date for um, the 18th of of August. My Lord, that's already passed. 18th of October. About October. Uh Yeah, at 2 p.m. on a Friday. So that's a Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Okay. So um, 2 p.m. And And again, the date. It's October what? Okay. So Friday, October 18th at 2 p.m. Eastern. Mm-hmm. And we did that because we have um, the SASH uh, conference coming up, so we wanted to put some you know, put that out there a couple of weeks after that. So, uh, and um, that's going to be on Zoom. What people can do right now is to email me directly. And I will okay. sign them up for it, and they will get a link. And that's uh, James at HopeForUs.com. So ho- the four is spelled out, F-O-R. So Hope, 
H-O-P-E, for F-O-R, us, U-S, dot com. Failing that, they can go on the website and just link through the the info uh, at hopeforus.com. I will uh, very shortly have it up under our events page, which is in the menu bar. You would just go to the website, www.hopeforus.com, and click on events, and uh, I will put it in there right at the top. And that will include a link to uh, to register for it. We just the only reason we really need the registration. There's no no money or anything like that. It's free. It just helps us uh, with the numbers and managing uh, how many people. The last webinar we did, we had a uh, 135 people, uh, and then several more who signed up um, because they couldn't come to it to receive the video afterward. Um, so I am actually preparing. Uh, it's almost finished. A video of this with um, that, you know, that webinar will be live, but this is a recorded version, uh, you know, actually edited so that it's very, there's no ums and ahs like I tend to do. <laughs> and that, uh, I will make available to uh, pretty much to everybody, but uh, especially off, off the bat to professionals uh, working in this field because I've oriented it toward partners rather than toward professionals, um, which was what I wanted to do for that video. This uh, presentation, professionals and partners and actors are welcome. So it's for everybody. Uh, and, you know, we'll have a question and answer session as well. So some of those questions and answers may be from professionals and uh, they may be from people who are going through this. Well, and I want to add to our listening audience, you know, one of the things that James and Sharon have done is that they actually are looking at this from a problematic sexual and intimacy standpoint. So instead of calling it problematic sexual behavior, they're calling it problematic sexual and intimacy behavior. So that, of course, includes sex addiction, compulsive sexual behavior, pornography addiction, hypersexuality, sexual and emotional affairs, intimacy avoidance during sexual emotional acting out. And so it doesn't matter where you are in your development. This webinar would be an excellent resource to understand better the attachment styles and the events that um, have been devastated um, because of this problematic sexual and intimacy behavior. Again, I'm talking with James Anir, and he said you could contact him at james at hopeforus.com or go to the website, www.hopeforus.com. So as we close, James, what would you tell our listening audience um, to give them hope? Okay, so... I'm going to kind of link it into the work that we've done uh, on this attachment style change in betrayed partners. Um, and that is that while we can't correlate how long it takes, which I think frankly is very freeing because I, I, the fear of if we came up with a number, uh, okay, it takes this long to go through this phase, that long to go through the other phase, et cetera then there would be sort of expectation placed on that. And I, 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 what I want to be able to pass along to partners is this takes as long as it takes, and it's your healing. And so your movement is based on your healing, your choice as to when you feel ready to move into that next stage. Um, obviously, nobody wants to get stuck. Uh, and so if you're feeling like, okay, this is going on too long to talk to your therapist about what other things can I do to help move me through this. Mm -hmm. But there's also a natural timing for each person, and there's no judgment as to how long that takes. If it takes, you know, three months to get through the the moving from um, high, from fearful avoidant to, to um I'm sorry, uh, from fearful That's avoidance. okay, but we've only got 30 seconds, James. Okay. So from fearful avoidance to preoccupied and bouncing back and forth, there's, there's hope there. You don't have to feel mm -hmm. like, okay, this is going on too long. So I think that would be my message is, you know, don't put pressure on yourself. 
to get through this, these stages too quickly. Oh, great advice. That is what they all tend to do. So I'm glad we're leaving the show with that advice. And please sign up for his webinar at hopeforus.com, and that will be up later by the end of the week. Make it a great one. Okay, James, we just had to end. I am sorry, but the time was kicking away. How are you doing? 